Well, good morning. Like she said, my name is Andrew, and I'm the youth pastor here, and I'm excited that today I get to conclude our series, Come and See. Before we get started, during third service, one of the things that happens a couple times of the year, we get the blessing of cannon fire. So if you hear something that sounds like a cannon, they tell me they're blanks. I'm still new around here, so I, I believe them, but... <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> we, we've been looking at the different ways in this series about the way God pursues us, and then he also invites us to repair the broken relationship with him. And our roadmap through this Come and See series has, has been the first four chapters in a book called John in the New Testament. Now, the book of John is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, and it's actually written by one of his closest friends. It's written by a man literally who was there, And he actually told us what the primary reason is for why he wrote it. In John 20, verses 30 through 31, it says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John saw Jesus interact with thousands of people, and he saw him do countless miracles, but the ones that we get to read in this book were handpicked by John to help us understand who Jesus is and make a decision about him. The message of this whole book literally is, is come and see who Jesus is. So today we're going to be looking at a story from chapter 4 that we typically refer to as the woman at the well. This account is all about satisfying thirst and uh, challenging our perspective. There are two big themes in this story that I'd like for us to take a look at today and then uh, draw some conclusions for us. Now, a few weeks ago, God provided uh, a new place for my family and I to live. We're really grateful. So, of course, as soon as we uh, got everything signed, I borrowed a truck for about a week and spent every spare moment I had packing up everything in the truck and moving it to the new place. Now, I've been told that moving is like one of the top five most stressful events that you can do in your life, but I decided to make it more difficult on myself. I decided it was also a really good time to build a new bed frame for our bed. Um, I I put a lot of pressure on myself to to get all this stuff done in the move because I I really had about a two-day window for the move to happen before I actually went out of town for a few days. So, I wanted to leave my wife with a few essentials for her and our children, like a bed. That's important, you know. Um, and also, we're, we're expecting our fourth child in December, so we're really excited. I didn't want to leave my pregnant wife alone for several days without important things uh, with our three daughters. So I thought it would be fun to give you a snapshot of what I consider to be the hardest day in the move, uh, as tracked by my fitness watch. They're so handy. I love the, the 21st century. It's important to note that I moved from an upstairs apartment to a townhouse that also had stairs. So when it says I climbed 48 flights of stairs, I believe it. At about the 47th flight of stairs, I just thought, you know, I'm going to climb it one more time, and that's to go to bed. So (laughs) I woke up that day at 6 a.m. I got right to work. Honestly, I don't remember eating very much that day. And I was charging pretty hard until all of a sudden my body let me know that it wasn't too excited for the way that I was treating it. I remember there was a specific moment. I was sitting in the truck outside of Home Depot getting ready to buy some lumber, and all of a sudden I felt terrible. Uh, I had a stomach ache, and I had a pounding headache. And I, I, I realized, oh, wow, I, I need some water. So my first instinct, I reached for my bottle of water that I had the day before, and, of course, it was empty. So 
I did what most people would do. I just ignored my body and went inside and bought some lumber. It was not the best idea because while I was in line to get this lumber, I saw this case, this refrigerator full of what I thought was probably like 100 Powerade. It was probably like five, but I was really thirsty. So I, I saw it. My body immediately said, this is what you need. You need to buy some of that. So I bought a Powerade and I bought a water. And within about five minutes, all 40 ounces of liquid were gone. Uh, I... I finished them before I left the parking lot. And looking back at that experience, by the way, I, I wanted to show you that moment in the car uh, with an arrow up on the, the board to show you exactly where that moment was for me. At that moment, my brain and my body were not in sync. I was focusing so hard on my goals that something as important as water, it didn't make it on my radar for an entire day. And Unfortunately, missing out on some of the most important things is actually really easy for all of us to do. But it makes you wonder, are there other most important things that don't make it onto our radar? And it makes me ask this question. How, how would you feel if you got to the end of your life, and while you were focused on many good things, you somehow ignored the best things? Just like I kind of ignored my thirst. And this is exactly the kind of question that gets raised by today's passage in John chapter 4. And I'd like to set the story up for you. As Jesus was gathering more and more followers, there was a group that opposed his ministry that was, of course, getting frustrated. His, his group was growing. So Jesus decided it was time to leave where he was at in, in an area called Judea. And he decided to go back north to an area called Galilee. Now, on the journey... He stops outside of a town in a region called Samaria at noon to rest by a well, which is where we pick up the story in John 4, 7 through 9. It says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, when I read the story... My first thought is always, what's the big deal? I mean, who hasn't asked a lady at a restaurant for a glass of water? My biggest concern usually is whether I want lemon or not. So we have to understand that at this time, because of their culture and because of their history, this was a major breach in the social norms, and it was a massive shock to the woman. In fact, it's so much of a shock that she says something about it. She says that you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Because she was a woman, her expectation actually at this time was to be ignored by men as she went about her chores because it was customary that men and women didn't speak in public in this time. In fact, if a married man went out in public with his wife, he probably wouldn't speak with her while he was out. It was the social norm of the day. But she makes mention of a bigger reason for her shock, and it's when she says that, uh, you know, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Obviously, by the way he was dressed, he was a Jewish man. They had a specific garb that they would wear, and she could probably tell from that that he was also a teacher. And so she brings it up. Because of the the centuries of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, they just didn't speak. For us to get the most out of the story, I think we need to understand some of the history and how actually this person was viewed from the Jews. We need to understand who this Samaritan person was that Jesus was talking with. First, she was actually a different ethnicity. So in 722 B.C., the Assyrians exiled the the Israelites from their homeland, uh, basically moving most of them out of the country. 
And so when they did that, there were some people left in the land. And those that were left in Israel, actually, they intermarried with some of the different people groups from around the, the time. They had different religions. And basically, that's what happened in Samaria. So, so this was a group of people that intermarried. And to the Jews at the time, they basically viewed this, this whole region of Samaria as a group full of their ancestors who had forsaken their God and intermarried with non-Jews. It was a pretty big deal, and this was actually so off-putting that the Jews would intentionally go out of their way, sometimes even miles, just to avoid the people in Samaria. I'm going to show a map. Basically, you see Jesus' route is the most direct route, but the traditional route of the time, you see them go take a hard right, they go all the way across the Jordan River, then they go up and then cross back. Now, they weren't only a different ethnicity. Uh, They were actually a different religion their view of God was affected by these relationships they had developed and intermarried with hundreds of years before. And so they actually only accepted the first five books of the Hebrew Bible instead of the whole Hebrew Bible. We call it the Old Testament now, and there's 39 books, actually, that that are there. And they didn't worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. This was the one place that Jews agreed they needed to worship God. And so it was a big offense to the Jews that this group of people built a temple somewhere else to worship. And finally... Because of her lifestyle, she was actually an outcast from her village. She had ventured out to the well that day at noon because she wanted to most likely avoid some public shame. Usually people went to the, the well at about um, evening. So, so she probably wanted to avoid some public shame. And Jesus was a teacher. And teachers of the day, they wouldn't accept water or drink from the same vessel as an outcast or a Samaritan. And she happened to be both. So the question I want to look at today is, why would Jesus be willing to take this kind of a risk to speak to this woman in public? And I want to look at two major reasons from the story. The first reason is found in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So reason one, Jesus knew the greatest need. He goes on to say a few verses later in verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, meaning the the normal water from the well, that person, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He knew her greatest need and the greatest need of all mankind. Jesus knew that the thirst that had brought the woman to the well every day, went deeper than a physical thirst. And at this point, she had a spiritual thirst. Her soul was parched from carrying the weight of her sin for her entire life. She didn't know the one true God, and she didn't have eternal life. That is what was causing her deep thirst, her spiritual thirst. And that's actually exactly what Jesus was offering to satisfy. Because only Jesus offers living water for parched souls. As the story continues, Jesus explains this type of water to her, but it's clear that she doesn't quite understand. She asks him for this water. She says, please give me this water, basically so she doesn't have to go out in public anymore when she's thirsty. She's hoping it's going to add a convenience to her life that will help her avoid some of the public shame that she feels from her sin. But she misses the point that Jesus is actually trying to make. He's actually there to give her eternal life and to give her freedom from the weight of her sin. So 
to bring that point really up to the, to the forefront of her mind, he exposes the sin that she has been hiding from him. In John 4, 16 through 18, he says this. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So it turns out that her life was littered with broken relationships. Years of her life were spent trying to get significance to satisfy this thirst in her soul through relationships, and they just weren't cutting it. As their conversation continues, though, it's, it's really clear to see that her sin has been exposed, but that has actually led her uh, more towards an attitude of repentance. So basically, her heart is warming up to the truth that Jesus is about to reveal to her. This is a big deal. In John 4, 25 through 26, we see this. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, when Jesus said, I am the Messiah, it was profoundly significant. He means to say here that I, I'm here to be the Savior of the world, and I'm bringing God's salvation and making it available to every person on the planet. Until this point in their conversation, the woman really didn't know his real identity. So this revelation rightly so, would have been a staggering shock to her. I mean, to find out that the person that you're talking to is the one that you and your people have waited centuries for, and to be faced with him realizing that there is a decision that needs to be made. Now you have this life-changing decision to make. Would she trust him to give her eternal life? Would she accept the offer of living water? And then the implications of that. If, If what he was saying was true, not only was it important for her, but it also meant that there were other people that also needed to hear this. There are implications for all people if he was the Messiah. I mean, what a staggering thought. Every person we encounter, though, is like this woman. They're spiritually thirsty, and some people don't realize it. If they don't have a relationship with God, repairing that broken relationship is actually their greatest need as a person. And in fact, three chapters later, we see a dramatic event that exposes Jesus' heart for all people. He's, ga- he's at a large gathering where thousands of people are there from all over Israel to celebrate, and we see this. And in John 7, verses 37 through 38, it says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and find drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I mean, can you imagine the scene? Hundreds and thousands of people are gathered around, and Jesus stands and cries out for people to come to him, that they would have their thirst satisfied. Only Jesus can satisfy the thirst for all of our souls. And that's the first reason why he spoke with the woman. The reason is he knew her greatest need. He knew that she needed living water for her soul, and he knew that he was the only one that could give it. And the second reason is this. Jesus wanted to challenge our perspective. Our perspective is the way we think the world works in a particular situation. It's basically the lens that we see the world through. And our perspective is challenged when something happens that we don't expect. Basically, something happens, it doesn't fit into our view of reality, and we have to figure out how it fits. And sometimes we have to change our perspective to, to actually see a, a greater view of reality. And so it's, it's important to note that there's a specific group of people that are gone from this entire conversation. 
until a very specific point, and that was the disciples. I mean, earlier we read that they all conveniently went into town to buy food. I mean, there's 12 of them, and they needed to buy food for 13 people. I don't know why it took all 12, but obviously God had a plan, and they all went. And so I want to read us a few verses that lead up to this when they come back. These are really important to set the timing. So, so in John 4, 26 through 27, Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking with a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you, why are you speaking with her? So Jesus, as the master teacher, knew that his disciples had accepted that he was the Savior for the world, but they needed this jarring experience to help them understand what that actually meant. By revealing his true identity to this Samaritan woman, it really made them think and ask to this person, to an obscure, immoral, despised Samaritan woman, that's who you reveal that you're the Messiah to? I mean, it really made them think, and, and she's the outcast of the outcasts of Israel. This must have left his followers reeling. They were obviously confused from what we saw in those verses. Even though earlier in the book of John, they had heard it said of Jesus that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they, they kind of had their nice, neat ideas of who the world really was. And it turns out that that view was a little too narrow of a view of who God would save. And, you know, honestly, I don't want to give them a hard time. A lot of this was cultural. It was something that they had been ingrained in them for their entire lives. But I don't think I could do much better. But it really took this sledgehammer experience to smash through everyone's excuses for not showing love to certain kinds of people. Jesus thought, who is the furthest away from everyone's expectations. That, that's where I'll start. The polar opposite, the kind of person that would never, ever make it on someone's radar. Different ethnicity, different religion, different gender, different lifestyle, not a problem. Jesus revealed his identity to this woman because he wanted to proclaim his plan for worldwide salvation. And this was actually a preview of his plan for global evangelism. In this story, he boldly proclaimed that God's love for people is not obstructed by the barriers that we perceive. God's love, his saving love, moves along unobstructed paths. If, if his desire is to bring living water to a person, he cannot be blocked or restricted. His love is totally unobstructed by the barriers that we put up in our minds. But the concerning part is that we all realize that there are some barriers. We have blind spots. So how do we find these barriers? And what are the most common barriers that we face? What I'd like to do today is propose three different barriers that we all face that keep us from offering living water to people with parched souls. The first is a good place to start, I think. It's called the awareness barrier. And that's because the first obstacle to change is perception. If you aren't aware that there's a problem or an issue, I mean, how will it ever be addressed? This is actually what Jesus was, was doing when he, like, he broke the traditions of the day in front of his disciples to speak with someone else. He was basically showing them the barriers that they had in their own minds. They thought they knew what Jesus meant by the world, but it was obvious that they were overlooking people in their own backyard. They, they weren't fully aware of what that meant, and so Jesus had this experience for them to help with their understanding. God's love for the people he made is not regulated, regulated by those obstacles that we often see. 
what Jesus shattered, honestly, they weren't real obstacles. He, he has no barriers. He has no obstacles. He actually shattered our preconceptions about who is eligible to receive God's love. Before they went on their journey through Samaria, we see something interesting written about Jesus that I wanted to talk about. In John 4, 4, so right before the story, there's a small verse that actually has pretty big implications. It says this, Now he had to go through Samaria. It says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So it made me question, well, is this the only route he could take to Galilee? I mean, no. Uh, we, we looked earlier at the traditional route. That alternate route was well known. Or maybe I was thinking, is there something really important that had to happen in Galilee, some appointment that he needed to get to? And what we find out later is that after this woman has an interaction with Jesus and begins to really see that he's the Messiah, she goes and tells her entire village about him and, and basically says, is this the Messiah? And they all come and see. And there's so many people that are coming that he stays in Galilee for, uh, excuse me, he stays there in Samaria for, for two days. So there wasn't something in Galilee that he had to get to. In fact, the word used here for he had to, it, it literally means that he was internally compelled. This occasion was the very reason that Jesus wanted to walk through Samaria. He knew that there was a village of people that needed to know about salvation, and he also knew that it would take this jarring experience to really help the disciples become more aware of who would actually get God's love. Now, it's safe to say that the disciples, as they followed Jesus, were regularly made pretty uncomfortable. And sometimes it feels like that to me as I, I read the scriptures and try to apply uh, what, what we see there. But it, it really makes me uncomfortable because it makes me ask, who are the down-and-out people that don't make it onto my radar? Who are these people that I don't see? And that's why the awareness barrier is the first one. Because without knocking it down first, we won't share the truth about Jesus with other people. Without becoming aware of maybe a certain person or group of people that aren't on our, our radar, that God has placed us around, maybe we won't share the truth about Jesus with the, the people that are around us. And so, what I would like to encourage all of us to do is to take an inventory of our hearts. So I'd encourage you, take an inventory of your heart. And what I mean by that is seriously consider whether or not you have an awareness barrier. See if there are people around you that God loves that just don't make it onto your radar. To help, I'd like to give a couple questions that you might ask as you begin to pray and think about that. The first question is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to satisfy the thirst of every person you meet? And the second is, are you concerned about the spiritual welfare of those around you? So these are important questions. The first is, uh, basically, do you believe that Jesus really is the answer for every person you meet to satisfy their deepest thirst and longing? And then after that question is answered, basically the other one is asking yourself, well, that's true, then, then how are the people around me doing? The people that God has strategically placed me around, what does their relationship with God look like? Do they know him? Do they, are, they, are they looking for him? Do they not care? So that's what I would encourage all of you to do, is to take an inventory of your heart with those questions. And the second barrier, I, I, this is the one that comes up all too often, it's the excuse barrier. There are at least two excuses that Jesus completely disregards as he spoke to the Samaritan woman. And the first one is one that I face pretty often. I think this about people around me 
all the time. The, it, the first one is that they don't care. There's no way that person is looking for God or would want to be my friend, uh, or friends with me, someone who's trying to walk with God. They're consumed with their hobby, their family, their work. Maybe they're super focused on their political views or their own entertainment. You know, maybe they have a real career focus. And it just looks from the outside that they're not looking for God and they're not looking for anything that will distract them from their goal. The Samaritan woman didn't come to the well looking for a life-changing experience. Honestly, uh, her probably best-case scenario was to go to the well and be completely ignored by everyone that she came in contact with. But through her conversation with Jesus, she began to realize that she did have a spiritual thirst. And, and Jesus took the initiative to step into her world and offer her life. So just because they might not look like they care about God or want a relationship with him, God has already been working in the lives of people that he's put us around. They just might need some help connecting some of the dots. So that's the first excuse. They don't care. And the second one is similar with a little twist. It's that they are too far gone. This is one that I, I think of often as well. Basically, the thought is there's no way that they would, e they would ever come to know Jesus. The life that they're living is all about everything opposite to what Jesus is about. But it's important to remember that this woman lived knowingly in opposition to what she knew God would want. And Jesus was fully aware of that. And he didn't approach her with expectations that she act a certain way or know all the right things. He didn't approach her with no faith and little hope. But instead, he just held out the word of life to someone he knew was perishing. I mean, the greatest, uh, the greatest need a person has is living water for their soul. And the things that they are doing that make you think that, oh, they'll never come to know Jesus, are, are the exact things that should let you know that he is their deepest need. B putting their hope in wealth or status that, that could never satisfy, seeking fulfillment from a bottle or for some type of sexual experience, or maybe trying to escape through a substance. I mean, these are all ways that people are unsuccessfully trying to satisfy their deep thirst. And I spent a lot of time in the last few weeks just thinking about thirst and it made me wonder, you know, what exactly is thirst? Well, it's exactly what you think. It's basically a response to drink that's triggered when your body detects that it's, it's dropped below a certain threshold of hydration. So basically your body gets to a point where it says, yep, don't have enough water, it's time to drink, and then you want to go drink something. And what I realize is that's really a lot like what it is with our spiritual thirst, there usually has to be some type of event or, or many events that, that come together in a point where, where someone realizes their spiritual thirst. They, they drop below a certain threshold, possibly, where they realize they do have a need or their current lifestyle just isn't cutting it. For me, it was a series of events that culminated in one important moment. For me, I had come to high school, and I had looked for relationships and, and friendships and, and tried to, to get my satisfaction from girls and some of the different ways that my friends and everyone said that this is how you have fun, this is how your life is supposed to look like, this is really what gives meaning. And after several years, when I was 17, I, I looked back at my short life, and I just realized I was worse now than whenever I started. And I had one important thought was that the one thing I really hadn't tried was to seriously follow Jesus, to, to devote my life to him and see the difference that he could actually make. I grew up 
kind of in a Christian home, but I didn't understand uh, the, the power that, that comes from God as you actually give your life to him and walk with him. And so I decided to do that when I was 17. And you honestly probably couldn't have to- said from the outside that, that I was looking for God, that I was someone that was close to following God. And I asked you the question, what happened in your life that dropped you below the threshold where you realized that you wanted to come and see who Jesus is, to explore uh, things in a deeper way? Maybe from the outside, you look too far gone, or like you didn't care about God, but you, you can't usually tell what's happening on the inside of a person just from the outside. It's really complicated what, what's happening in the hearts of people, which actually brings us to the last barrier. This is the mystery barrier. And it's called that because the whole process of evangelism is actually shrouded in mystery. At least, I mean, it's a mystery for us, not for God. We don't know when or if the light is going to turn on for, for people around us to, to understand the good news about Jesus and decide to follow him. And unlike Jesus, we don't know the future. We don't have a calendar of these divine appointments that we have scheduled that we need to get to. And we definitely don't instantly know the life history of a person that we're talking to. But that's actually a really good thing. As people, we want to expedite the process. We want efficiency and trackable progress. But we're talking about people coming to a realization of who God is and who they are. I mean, that usually means they're struggling with some of the biggest questions in life, some, some really complex issues. So, so someone coming to a point where they decide to follow Jesus is actually very complex. And in God's wisdom, he decided it was best for us to be limited and for there to be some mystery in the process. Now, why? I mean, I would love it if, if it wasn't mysterious. I think sometimes the mystery of what happens in someone's heart or, you know, sharing our faith, there are lots of moving pieces that can be complicated and we, we stay away from it. But if loving people and telling them about Jesus was a simple four-step process that worked for every person, they would immediately become projects instead of people in our minds. As soon as we knew the right pieces to put together for them to decide to follow Jesus, in our minds they would transform from a person into different parts that needed to be put together on an assembly line. By introducing some unknowns into the equation, it actually requires that we genuinely get to know people and learn what would be something that would be helpful for them. We, we learn to care for them and really love them. And it forces us to be dependent on God through the process as we partner with him in the lives of people. Don't get me wrong, we're an important part of the process, but, but this is ultimately an exchange between another person and God that we're there for. And I recently read a book and a story, and it stuck out. It reminds me of our place in the process of sharing our faith. The writer of the book was traveling and ended up staying with a Christian missionary. Now, this Christian missionary had once been a follower of, of Islam and had decided to follow Jesus because of his relationship with some Christians. And so the writer, of course, was excited. He eagerly asked him about like what argument or line of reasoning these Christians gave that made him leave Islam and follow Jesus. His response was that it wasn't what they said, but it's who they were. And I'd like to read you a quote from the book. It says this, 
What impresses the world most is changed lives for which there's no natural explanation. As we spend time with other people, we begin to build bridges of trust. And as we relate with other people in everyday life, we'll be there when there are good things and when there are difficult things. The important part is that you're a representative of God in those moments and you're a friend. This might lead to times when you get to answer some of their, their tough questions that they've been wrestling through, or it might lead to opportunities for you to tell them how you decided to follow God. You know, that's exciting, but you never know when or if that light is going to come on for someone. But you will definitely not know if they never made it on your radar or there were barriers that we put up that, that kept you from, from actually starting a friendship. So as I mentioned earlier, now, I'm new now to a new neighborhood, which is exciting. There are people I believe God has strategically put me around. And one of the things I'm really excited about, actually we've been talking about this for a few weeks, are these barbecue boxes. And this is a tool that we use to really help, um, help you start friendships and, and conversations, possibly with people that you've never met. And so whenever I moved here a year ago, we were on the tail end of barbecue boxes, and they didn't make a lot of sense for me to use, like the day I'm moving my stuff in. I'm like, hey, want to have a barbecue? That just... Probably wouldn't have gone over well, but it is a really helpful first step. And we actually plan on using it with people that we haven't yet met and inviting them. And so, I mean, there are several people that I can imagine using this with in our complex. I'm excited. The thing I want to leave you guys with is this, that, that it's an honor and a privilege to get to partner with God as we see their lives transformed by what Jesus has done. And for us to see thirsty souls get living water, I mean, what confidence it should give us to know that for every person we see, we have the answer for what their deepest need is. No matter how put together someone may look on the outside, it, it turns out that no amount of money or influence is relevant when trying to satisfy a thirsty soul. Imagine the future for those around you if they decide to follow Jesus. I mean, what would their life look like if they received this living water for their thirsty souls? What would change? Imagine what God would do if we prayed for our neighbors and actively tried to remove the barriers that we put up in our minds that keep us from reaching out to them. We all have at least one barrier. Honestly, I deal with these mostly on a daily basis. But the question really is, which barrier do you run into most? I encourage you to seriously consider that question and figure out what next step you can take to begin removing it. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that we can know you and that in your wisdom you decided it was best that we get to partner with you in the lives of people, that we get to be your representative to the, to the men and women that you've placed us around, and whether it's at our school, our job, in our neighborhood, in our apartment complexes. God, you've strategically placed us around those people to really represent you. God, we pray that you would give us a desire to follow you, that you would help us sort through whether we have barriers that we've put up and to have a better view, a changed perspective on, on the people that you love that are around us every day. God, we pray that you would ultimately do this for your praise and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.